Well, always a joy to turn to the scriptures with everyone. Uh, join me in Ephesians chapter one. We have looked at Ephesians a lot in the summer sermon series, but there's a, a few verses that we still want to look at as we continue this series that is entitled Our Identity in Christ. Our Identity in Christ. Our Identity in Our Savior. Indeed, being essential to our Christian life. Our union with Jesus being the foundation of our salvation, of who we are, of what we think about ourselves. Our identity, our union with Jesus, which then determines everything about us. Again, this is foundational. Determines our goals, our choices, our priorities. Identity in Christ, what we understand that to mean and be, determines our responses, our thoughts, our words, our behavior. And Kenneth Boa is right, we cannot consistently behave in ways that are different from what we believe about ourselves. It's true. And for the Christian, what we believe about ourselves is our union with Christ. It's our identity in him. And so over the last six weeks, we have looked at a variety of identities and because of our union with Jesus. Privileges, remember the key phrase, privileges of being in Christ. In Christ. It continues throughout the New Testament. This is what describes a believer. What have we seen? We have seen that in Christ, we are the redeemed. We've seen that in Christ, we are the justified. In Christ, we are the adopted. In Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. In Christ, we have been raised to newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is true. If anyone is in Christ, there's the union. If anyone is united to Christ, what flows from that union? We are what? We're a new creature. We're a new creature. We've been given a new identity. How new, how better. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so everything that was a part of our old self is now new. Everything. What we found our identity in before, the favor, the approval from this world, the fading security of the temporal, the fleeting promises of sin, what we found our identity in before has been replaced by all the blessings all the privileges we have looked at over the last few weeks. And yet, and yet, in spite of all those new identities we have been given, it is the identity we will look at this morning that gives each of those spiritual blessings their value and their weight and their meaning. Without this identity that we'll look at this morning, without this identity, everything we have looked up at to this point would be meaningless. We're talking about our identity as those who have been saved and secure, saved and 
secure, never to be lost in sin again, never to be discarded by God, never to be let go by God's gracious hand. This is the identity that undergirds every other identity we have been given in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, think about it this way. If it wasn't for our divine security in Christ, the great blessing of redemption could be reversed, right? Could be reversed. God could decide to place us back into the slave market of sin. We've sinned too much, we'll just give you back. If it wasn't for our divine security in Christ, the blessing of justification, God crediting Christ's righteousness to our account, that would be meaningless because God could annul his decision at any moment. If it wasn't for divine security in Christ, our identity as an adopted child of God would not instill peace. No, it would instill worry, fear. Why? Because God could sever that relationship at any point. If it wasn't for divine security in Christ, our identity as co-heirs with Christ would be hollow since God could revoke his promises to us if he so chose. He could change his last will and testament for his children. Our identity as being saved and secure is what gives us assurance in every spiritual blessing God has given to us. It is what undergirds our praise. It is what calms every fear. It is what instills everlasting joy. It is what frees us, frees us to live in obedience to our Lord. It's what takes the sting out of the grave. This is a needed identity. If there's anything our world tells us today, it's not security, is it? It's insecurity. We need to believe that we are secure in our Savior. Not only believe that, but live like we are secure in Christ. Despite the unsettled nature of our world, the many unknowns of the future, we as those who have been united to Christ should be the most hopeful, right? We should be the most hopeful. We should be the most vocal because we are secure forever. We are held by the omnipotent hand of God never to be lost. And so you're in Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter one. I wanna show you just how secure we are in Jesus. Just how secure our union with Christ is. Three reasons we are saved and secure. Three reasons we can rest secure in our identity in Jesus. We can rest knowing that our Savior will never leave us, that we can live, live obediently, knowing that we will never be forsaken. Three reasons, let's start with reason number one. Reason number one, we are secure in Christ forever. We are secure in Christ forever because the Father selected us. It's because the Father selected us. So understand our union with Jesus is from the beginning an act of God. 
This resided in the eternal mind of God. It is accomplished by the sovereign will of God. Ultimately, we are saved and ultimately we are secure in Christ, not because we chose him. And it's not because we have faith. No, we're secure in Christ because God chose us. And that choice was a sovereign choice. It was a loving choice. It was a gracious choice he made. Here's the key, before the foundation of the world. Look at verse three. Just see how this unfolds. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship him. Give thanks to him. Praise him. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, here's union, in Christ, united to his son. Here's a phrase I want to focus in on here. Just as he chose us in him. He's blessed us in Christ, but he's chosen us to be in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We're secure because we are the divinely chosen. That's why we're secure. Colossians 3, believers are those who have been chosen. 2 Thessalonians 2, believers are those God has chosen from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of time. 2 Timothy 1, believers are those who have been called by God's holy calling. Not according to our works. No, according to his grace, that has nothing to do with our goodness, nothing to do with us. It's according to his own purpose and grace. Titus 1, believers are those chosen of God. 1 Peter 1, believers are those who are chosen according to God the Father. So before the foundation of the world, before anything was brought into being, Before sin even entered the world, God set his plan of salvation in motion by choosing a select group of people to save. A select group. Look at verse four here. Just as he chose us, that verb chose there, ek legomai, ek legomai, it means to pick to pick out of a group. And here it's in the middle voice. What does that mean? Well, it means that God made this choice for himself. Middle voice, I'm choosing for myself. This is a totally independent choice that took place in the inter-Trinitarian mind of God. And just note here, This was not a choice based upon anyone's foreseen faith. That would be impossible. Impossible, why? Because Philippians 1 says that God grants faith. In fact, we see that in Ephesians 2 here. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? It's a gift, it's a gift from God. So God is not looking down the corridor of time to see who's going to choose him, and then he says, well, I'll choose them. Kind of turns it on its head. 
Again, that's impossible because if God ever looked down the corridor of time, listen, I don't know each and every one of you, but I do know what's true about you. If God ever looked down the corridor of time, he would never see in you a love for him, ever, unless he gives you that love. We love him because he first what? Loved us. It's a choice not based on any merits on our parts. Again, impossible, we're depraved, totally. No, again, back to Ephesians 1. This is a choice based simply and only on God's holy, sovereign, merciful, and loving purpose. And that's what's emphasized here. Look at verse 4. At the very end, in love, loving choice, in love, he predestined us, he selected us according to what? The kind intention of whose will? His will. Look at verse seven. We've been redeemed. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? Why did God redeem us? Why did he forgive us? Here's why. According to the riches of his grace. Look at verse nine. He made known to us the mystery of his will, the will of the gospel. He opened up our eyes to see the glory in Christ. He opened up our hearts to see that we needed a savior from sin. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Why? According to his kind, gracious, merciful intention. Now watch this, which he purposed in who? In Christ. In Christ. Union. Drop down to verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance. We're co-heirs. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? According to his purpose, who works. Notice these two words, all things. Everything in regards to salvation. All things. All things from beginning to end. All things from the eternal choice to save selected sinners. All things to the means by which we will hear the gospel. All things to the payment for sin by sending Christ. All things to the work of the Spirit to open up our hearts. He works all things after what? The counsel of whose will? His will. Our salvation is holy from God and through God and back to God. Notice also, verse four, two observations here. He chose us in him. He chose us in him. First of all, note, God the Father did not merely choose a plan of salvation. So I'm just gonna choose some people, right? Some people. And we'll see if they decide. He didn't choose, he didn't determine a plan of salvation. He specifically chose certain people to save. It's a huge difference. He chose us. He selected us. A specific group, particular names, amazing. He chose me, my name. This is a specific choice, a personal choice. And the second observation here is that God's choice involved this certain group of people 
to be placed in Christ, in him. He chose us in him. Drop down to verse seven. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. In him, union. Notice the end of verse 10. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. In him. Notice the end of verse 13. Having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ. So that is to say, in the eternal mind of God, at the moment of his divine choosing, before the foundation of the world, God placed his chosen ones to be into a select and eternal union with his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that significant? Well, grasp this. We who are saved are as secure in our relationship with God the Father, we are secure in that relationship as the Son is secure with his Father because we're in him. We're united to him. Again, timing here, verse four, this dates back to before the foundation of the world. A divine, eternal decree. So God choosing to save and give a specific group of people to his son, that was a love gift. A love gift to his son. We are the gift to the son from the father. And by placing us in Christ, surrounded by Christ, uniting us to the son of his love, by placing us in his son, that guarantees our security. It guarantees it. Just as the son cannot be lost by the father, neither can we. Now notice verse five here. God chose us, he redeemed us, he adopted us, but notice he did all of this for a particular reason. A particular reason. He did all of this to put himself, his grace on display, verse five. Believers are predestined to adoption. Why? For what purpose? Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he saved us, ultimately. He saves us, yes, to free us from sin. That's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is to put himself, his grace on display. That's what's primary. Look at verse 10. In him, union with Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, repeat it, to the praise of his glory. That's the eternal purpose. That's the primary purpose. He saves us so that he will be glorified. And thus it is entirely inconceivable that God would lose any of his own, right? If he lost any of his own, how would that resound to the praise of the glory of his grace? Wouldn't resound to the praise of his glory. If God lost any of his children, it would resound to the impotence of his power. He just couldn't hold on to us. If he lost any of his children, it would resound to the lack of his grace. He didn't have enough grace to secure us. This would be to the blemish of his glory. 
everything, everything about God's electing choice points to the believer's security. We are chosen by the Father based on his own pleasure. We are placed in Christ because of the Father's great love for his Son. And we are chosen to be to the praise of his glory for all of eternity. That's security. This is where the divine security for the believer begins. It dates back from before the foundation of the world. It's in the eternal mind of a loving, sovereign, gracious, merciful God who decides according to the counsel of his will, he decides that he will indeed select sinners unto salvation. One commentator wrote this, neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. The benevolent purpose that we should be holy and faultless sons of God destined to glorify him forever, that is fixed. Being part of a larger universe embracing plan. Not only did God make this plan that includes absolutely all things that ever take place in heaven, on earth, and in hell, past, present, and even future, he also wholly carries it out. That's Ephesians 1.11. His providence in time is as comprehensive as his decree from eternity. Hence, conclusion, nothing can upset the elect's future glory. We're secure. We're secure because of this first reason, because the Father selected us. But our security does not rest only on the Father's choice. No, we're Trinitarian, right? We're Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at the Spirit now. Reason number two, we're secure in Christ forever because the Spirit seals us. The Spirit seals us. From the Father to the Spirit. Verse 13, notice. This is part of God's eternal divine electing choice here. In the inter-Trinitarian council, the Trinity decides to provide one of themselves to seal us forever. Staggering, verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, Paul's moving from eternity past, now present time, what does God do when faith now is offered to Christ, faith that is a gift from God, what does he do? Here's what he does. He gives us the spirit. You are sealed in him. United forever with Christ, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The third member of the Trinity is the believer's seal. Again, that is staggering. Our security is Trinitarian security. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. And I love the word seal here. It's an important word. Here's the Greek word for the day. Sfragidzo, right? So use it at lunch. Sfragidzo. Carries with it the idea of two things. 
First of all, ownership. Second of all, protection. You're owned, you're protected. Cattle, even slaves during the first century were branded. They were sealed by their masters, branded. It indicated to whom they belonged. Ownership. But also protection is a way to guard property against theft. A way to secure the protection of those possessions. We'll bring that to the spiritual realm. Ownership, protection. Through the branding of the Spirit himself, the believer is owned by God. The branding of the Spirit himself, the believer is protected by God. It's not just a brand, it's a stamp. And what is the stamp? God himself. God himself promises to preserve us, to protect us forever. He gives us himself. And thus, through whatever trial or testing this life offers, we are secure. Again, that is why we should be the most hopeful We are secure, and we are secure until he takes final possession of us in glory. That's the timing. From before the foundation of the world, secure in Christ, to the time we see him in glory. There's another phrase used to describe the spirit. Verse 14, sealing ministry here. The spirit was given as a pledge He was given as a pledge. Down payment. He was given as a deposit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says the same thing. God has sealed us and gave the spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a down payment. Verse 14, he's the pledge of what? Of our inheritance, of our glorification. The down payment of it. The pledge of our future salvation. So this is God's hold on us. But again, bring it back to verse four. All of this was determined by God and for God before the foundation of the world, after the counsel of his divine will. And again, verse 14, notice how it ends, to the praise of his glory. This is for God. Yes, we're involved. And yes, we benefit. But primarily, this is for him, his glory. So you have the Father selecting us. You have the Spirit sealing us. But the Son is also involved. Again, Trinitarian protection here. Here's a third reason we're secure. We are secure in Christ forever because the Son assures us. The Son assures us. We're gonna step out of Ephesians, turn to John, turn to the Gospel of John. I had to get back to John eventually. Gospel of John here. And we're moving now, you can start in John 3, we're moving from the Father's eternal choice, which does include the Spirit's seal, to now the promises, the promises given from the one who actually died for our salvation. The assurance that Jesus gives. 
the very one we have been united to. We can't go through all of them. But Christ, throughout the Gospels, gives us promises of our future hope. All of these are from the lips of Jesus. And I say turn there, you should have these hidden on your heart, because we spent three years in John already, right? All right, John 3.15. We're just going to work our way through these. Self-explanatory, most of them. John 3.15, whoever believes will in him, in the Son, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So eternal life now is the promise. When you believe, you're granted eternal life. Now primarily, eternal life is a quality of life. It's a reconciled life with the Father. Literally, whoever believes in him will be given life of the age to come. This is resurrection life. Jesus says here that is received at the moment of salvation, the moment one believes. Yet eternal life is not just a quality of life. Eternal life also points to a duration of life, a life that endures for how long? Forever. And so by its very definition, those who are granted eternal life can never what? Lose that life. If you're given eternal life, how long do you have it? Forever, because it's eternal. We can't lose that life. If we could lose it, it can't be called eternal life. Which is why Jesus builds on this in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, here's the promise, shall not perish but instead have eternal life. So Jesus' promise is this. You come to me in faith for salvation. You will never perish, and thus you cannot perish. You will live. You will live forever. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. This proves the final perseverance of the saints. For if the believer ceased to be a believer, he would perish. And as he cannot perish, it is clear that he will continue a believer. Whosoever with his heart believeth in Christ is a saved man. Watch, not for tonight only, but for all the nights that shall ever be. And for that dread night of death. And for that solemn eternity which draws so near. You will never perish. How could you? You're attached to the son of God's love. Look at John 4, verse 14, John 4. Great imagery. Jesus promises the Samaritan woman, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall what? Never, mark it, never Thirst. There's no possibility that you will ever thirst again. You will never thirst. And Jesus here uses the double negative, ume. Never, no, never. You will never thirst. Why? Because the water that I will give to him will become in him a well of water springing up to what? Eternal life. 
You have our security put in the negative. You will never thirst. You have our security put in the positive. You will be granted eternal life. Look at John 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. Jesus begins with those two words that are used many times in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, mark it down. I'm basing this on my own faithfulness, on my own person. Truly, truly, I say to you. Here's the promise. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, that's present tense, has presently and forever eternal life. Eternal life is not something we wait for. We've been given it. And again, the promise, that person will not come into judgment. There's no condemnation anymore. How could there be? Because he has passed out of death, out of spiritual death. He's been removed from Satan's family. And he's been placed into what? Life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Turn to John 6. John 6, verse 38. Jesus gives an unbreakable chain of salvation here. An unbreakable chain. Start in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Does Jesus always do the will of his father? Absolutely. That's why he's come. Okay, well, what is this will then? What is this will? This is the will of him who sent me. And notice, it's not that Christ will die on the cross, though that is the will of God. That is the will of God, but that's not what Jesus focuses on here. No, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose how many? Nothing. That's the will of the Father. I ask again, does Christ always do the will of his Father? We can never be lost. The will is that we are secured. Next statement. But instead of losing anyone, but Christ promises that he will raise it up on the last day. He will raise us. And so we are secure in Christ. Our resurrection is secure. And it's the chain. All whom the Father gives to Christ are then kept by Christ. And all those kept by Christ will then be raised on the last day by Christ. No one's lost. No one slips through the cracks. And you can add here, too, the Spirit also protects us. Again, Trinitarian security. But Christ here is emphasizing that he is the guardian of our salvation. He guards it. Again, back to the reason, because this is the Father's will. This is the Father's will. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, again repeated, that... Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Not just some, there's not some that believe and they we're gonna fall away and, and then Christ is gonna lose them. And it's not it. 
All who sees the glory of God in the face of Christ, believes in him, will have eternal life, and promise, I myself will raise him up, the everyone, no one's lost. I'll raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Back to that first chain. The Father selects, the Father draws, he chooses, and all that the Father draws to Christ, I will raise him up on the last day. It's an unbreakable promise, unbreakable link, chain, given here by Christ. Look at John 10, John chapter 10. Verse 27, wonderful promise from Jesus again. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will what? Never, mark it down again, never perish. If you come to Christ in saving faith, you will never perish. And again, ume, double negative for emphasis. And then he adds this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. This is preserving grace. Preserving grace because of Christ's omnipotent hand. And then verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And so we're held by Christ. The father then holds Christ and we're in him and then the spirit seals us. How can we ever be lost? We should be the most hopeful, the most secure. One commentator put it this way, this is of the greatest comfort to believers Their assurance is based not on their feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on them. Isn't that the truth? All right, one more. Look at John 11. John 11, verse 25. John 11, 25. Many more throughout John's gospel, but I've only gotten through John 12, so I can't go past this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, though he die, yet shall live spiritually, guaranteed. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, will never spend one moment apart from the loving, all-satisfying Savior. It's an impossibility. And then you think, well, what's the proof, Jesus? Right? What's the proof? You've now said this over and over again, John 3, 4, 5, 10. What's the proof that no one can snatch anyone out of your hand? What's the proof that you will will raise him up on the last day? Here's the proof. John 11, verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I'll resurrect Lazarus from the dead and show you that I will lose no one. I am the resurrection and the life. Our eternal security is Trinitarian. 
Our identity in Christ is secure because the Father selects, the Spirit seals, and the Son assures. How much more secure can we get, right? All right, one more passage outside of John. Look at Romans chapter eight. Let's just finish here. Romans chapter eight. Let me begin in verse 28. There's so much more that you could add. I mean, you could, you could go back to verse 26. Why else are we secure? Verse 26, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. So, uh, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself, what? Intercedes for us. He's interceding on our behalf. You could add that, but I don't have an S. Spirit intercedes, right? Prays for us. Uh, you could add all of this. Christ intercedes for us. But look at verse 28. Another chain here. For those whom he foreknew, going back to eternity past, for those whom he foreknew, what does foreknow mean? Again, it's not that he's looking down the corridor of time and learning anything. God doesn't learn. It can't be the case. No, what we're seeing here is the same thing that we saw in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. It is a choosing. It's a, it's a knowing, the idea that you're going to choose to place your affection on someone. That's what no means in the scriptures. Adam knew Eve. That doesn't mean he, he knew her name intellectually, okay? There's affection, there's intimacy. That's the point of verse 28. This is a choosing to set special affection on a group of people, to know them intimately. The Lord knows those who are his. He loves them. And Paul says, for all those whom God knows, foreknows, chooses to love. That group he also predestined. He determines their destiny, their future. Drop down to verse 30. And these he predestined, he also called. So it's one group, no one's lost. These are links in a chain, links in a chain. Here you're known, foreknown, you're predestined, you're called, and these whom he called, he also justified. Everyone chosen will be justified. And then notice the end of the verse here, and those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. If you through faith have been justified, declared righteous by God based upon the righteousness of Christ, if you've been adopted into his family, through faith, here's the guarantee, you will be glorified. You will not be lost. There's no dropouts. No one slips through the cracks. And just notice here, he also glorified, that's in the past tense. So in the mind of God, this future glorification, no one here is glorified yet, right? This future glorification is secure in God's mind, so secure, Paul can write it as it's already taken place. You're glorified. You're glorified, not now, but you will be. And so verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who's against us? 
Who's against us? Who can tear us out of his hand? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, freely give us all things? How will he not give us security? If he gives us the cross, how does he not give us security? And then the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, let's come up with some possible answers. Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or, or the sword? No, Paul says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through him who loved us. We conquer because of God's unconditional love, unconditional because it's conditioned on himself. Verse 38, for I am convinced, may that be the application this morning, for we are convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we be convinced of that. May we be the most hopeful, the most vocal in an age of insecurity. John Piper writes this, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been loved by God from all eternity. He set his favor on you before the creation of the world. He chose you, this is personal. He chose you when he considered you in your helpless condition. He chose you for himself unconditionally. He loves you because he loves you. He chose to do this in eternity. And because his love for you never had a beginning, it can never have an end. How important is it to embrace and believe and live according to this identity in Christ? Again, our world is volatile, isn't it? There's doubts everywhere. There's uncertainty everywhere. There's questions about the future, not only about the future, about tomorrow. What better testimony can we give this world than one based upon an eternal security that rests on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We are saved and secured because we have been united to the Son of God's love. And thus, we are and forever will be recipients of God's compassionate grace, his unmerited love, and his never-ending kindness. Father, your grace goes well beyond what we can imagine. And Lord, I do pray that we would live according to this security Take away fear, Lord. Replace doubt with peace. Peace in your sovereign control. Peace in your loving goodness to us. 
May you grant us hope. As Ephesians 1 says, that everything is working to that day when everything will be summed up in Christ. May we not doubt what you are doing now. In your providence, you are directing this world to the glory of your name. Oh, your wisdom is deeper than ours. May we rest in the security that is only found in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.